We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hi, my name is Jamie. I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to just share what it was like, what happened, and a little bit about what it's like now. I don't have an audience, so a live audience. I'm just by myself in my cool little apartment surrounded by my plants, which is pretty amazing. And I'll get to that part later. But um yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool to see how different people do service and that these podcasts are available these days. It's just, what a miracle. Uh, so thank you, Tara, for having me on. And yeah, so I'll just, I'll start from when I started drinking and using. And just as a disclaimer, I, I have violence and a lot of pain and suffering in my story, which I think most of us do, but there is some violence. And so I just want to give a little um, heads up for that in case anyone um, is sensitive to those things. So yeah, I started drinking when I was around 14, I think. The first time I remember getting actually really happily buzzed was after, well, during my friend's quinceanera. She turned 15 and there was a whole lot of alcohol and I loved it right from the beginning. I wasn't one of those people who, you know, drank a little and then, you know, started drinking more. I am one of those people who, as soon as I took my first drink, I believe i had a problem from the very beginning and it progressed. I started drinking when I was 14 and I, as soon as I did start, I started drinking whenever I could. And I put vodka in my water bottles and brought it to school. I was a freshman in high school and uh, started smoking weed at that time. And I just thought I found the answer to life and all its problems. That's when I started skipping school and hanging out with people who were doing the same kinds of things that I was doing. And I felt I had always had this nervous disposition, this discomfort, feeling like an outsider, uncomfortable in my own skin feeling. And that I don't even remember when it started being a child around six years old when I learned about World War II, I just, I was crying and crying and, and it was my first, the first time I can remember at least having depression and, and asking my parents, what's the point? What is the point in this life? Why, why do we have to go through this? Why do people have to go through this? And being that young, looking back and being that young with depression, it's it's just no wonder that I tried to medicate, self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. When I was young, younger, around that age, I was around that age when our house got raided. My dad was growing pot and doing some other stuff. And my sister almost got taken away. And you know, my parents were really young when they had us. They were 20 when I was born. And, you know, they both grew up in pretty crazy situations themselves. So I think that I just kind of took on some of their trauma and we grew up together, right? We, my parents were so young that by the time I was growing up, they were still in the process of growing up too. So being sober it's pretty nice now that uh, we get to be adults together for the most part. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, my drinking, it got, it, it got excessive really fast. And the people that I was hanging out with, you know, before I knew it, it was, I was hanging out with people who were carrying weapons and selling drugs and 
The cops were around. Things got scary sometimes. Driving when I shouldn't have been driving and could have gotten in some really horrible accidents. And there are so many times when I had these experiences that I knew how lucky or fortunate or whatever you want to say, I knew that I was very fortunate not to have had severe consequences for my actions while under the influence. And it just, it, it wasn't, it didn't occur to me that I should stop drinking or using. It just, it was like, yeah, I got lucky. Cool. Thanks. You know, whatever the powers may be, I'm going to keep going on with my life now and look for some more dope or whatever, you know? So, um, there were just so many situations like that. Looking back, I still cringe that I lived through some of those things and how, how many times I could have hurt people and families and, and how lucky I am. But, you know, we don't regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. So I just, I try to be grateful and do service so that I never drink again and don't end up in those situations. Right. So yeah, thinking about what it was like, it was ugly. It was it was ugly. When I was 17, I graduated high school, barely. By that time, I had already been kicked out. I went through rehab, and I didn't get kicked out of rehab until later. But I had gone to, like, an outpatient rehab when I was 17 because I, I, I was doing meth when I was a teen, and it got really bad. I was having hallucinations and talking to myself. And I, I, I agreed to go to rehab for a couple months, but you know, I was going to, I, I went to rehab and I was clean as in like, I stopped doing meth. I didn't think that alcohol and marijuana or mushrooms and Coke were my problem. I just thought, you know, Hey, if I stop doing meth, I'll be fine. I continued on with what I was doing. And, um, I graduated high school barely. And I remember just like begging the teacher that was going to fail me. I was like, look, I show up to class. I don't always agree, but I show up. And if you, this is the only class. And if you fail me, I'm not going to graduate. And I basically talked my way into passing and barely passing. And yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. But I I got a high school diploma and I went to community college at DVC in the Bay Area. I went and failed and went and dropped out. And I made a decision one day when it, the the second time I dropped out that very day, I made this decision to move to Las Vegas. I went to school to DVC to drop out of my classes. And while I was there, and this was in 1999 <laughs> or 98 or something, I used the payphone <laughs> when we had payphones. And I called my cousin in Las Vegas and I said, tell my aunt that I'm coming down and I'm going to live with her. And I knew that I could because when I was younger and my parents left her to house sit for me, she uh, told me, you know, you should come down and live with me. At the time, she was still in California, down in Southern California. But I always had in the back of my mind, hey, I could go live with my Aunt Becky. Well, she was a partier. When she was house-sitting for my parents, she's the one that bought all the alcohol for my party. <laughs> so and we had like a week-long party. And so she was our house-sitter, but really she was my buyer. So that was my great idea. I moved to Las Vegas. I was uh, 19. It was great. I loved it. I felt like, hey, I made it. I was living with my aunt. We had one rule, and it was that we had to always have vodka in the house. That was our rule. Um, My cousin, who is her only son, he had 10 last names by the time I moved down there because her ex was a stalker. And she used to have to move around a lot and they had to change their names. So by the time I moved in with them, they, he was 13 and, and had 10 names by that time. And I, I decided to start doing the Vegas thing. So I went down to the strip club and since I wasn't old enough to work in a bar, I had to go to the, the full nude strip club 
that's ironic. So you're not old enough to drink. So you have to go completely nude, which I think is just fucking crazy, but that's Vegas for you. So, so I started doing that and I hated it, but I did it because it was great money. And, but in order to do it, I, I was drinking, I had to drink. I mean, I was doing that anyway. I'm not going to bullshit you, but but that's so that's you know that's what I did. I I started making more money and my aunt bought a house. She was a nurse and so I was helping out with the mortgage and we were partying. We were going to the bars and the casinos. Um but that was that was my social life. I was I was sleeping during the day usually and waking up and drinking and going shopping and then going to work and then coming home at five in the morning and getting high and going to bed and smoking weed and and passing out or whatever. And then same thing, get up, start drinking, go shopping, go to work. And it was very lonely. And my drinking continued to progress. I got a DUI while I was down there. I was 19 and I got my first DUI. I had three times the legal limit and, um, sat in jail for three days to detox and I had money. So I got a lawyer to, to just like put my case off so I didn't have to deal with it. So again, that wasn't enough for me to think that maybe I should stop drinking. I I did always decide to temper down a little bit, but you know how that goes <laughs> for an alcoholic like me. And um, many people in the program that I know, trying those different methods, uh, taking a trip, not taking a trip, right, Um, did all that stuff. And it just always came back to the same thing. I always pick back up. I always just, I'm just going to smoke weed. I'm not going to drink. But then I'd get high and I'd be like, hey, let's get a 40. Let's go, you know, whatever. And and it just, it, it was always there. And I never had any significant period of sobriety since I started using, except for that two months when I got, when I went to that outpatient rehab as a teenager, I kept dancing and, um, and I hated it. And I was driving without a license and I was still drinking and I just, I got in a fight with my cousin and actually we didn't get in a fight. We took a trip. My aunt got this new boyfriend who he like wasn't great. He wasn't horrible, but he wasn't great. He was kind of a jerk. And we, the four of us took a trip to Laughlin, which is a little town outside of Vegas. And while we were there, um, I got lost and I didn't have any money and I didn't have an ID. So I got kicked out of the casino and I was waiting outside for them for like an hour and a half or two hours or something. So when they finally came out and we left, I was really upset and I was pissed and I was an angry little asshole drunk. So I was hitting when we were driving, I was so upset and I was drunk and I'm hitting my aunt's seat and my cousin who was sitting next to me, who is like 14 or whatever, he thought I was hitting my aunt in the back of her head. I was hitting the seat and, and he thought I was hitting her head and he punched me in the face and I convinced my aunt to pull over to, so I could go to the bathroom and her boyfriend, he was like, good, finally shut her up, shut that bitch up, whatever. And so I jumped out and, and I had blood just all just soaking my dress. And it was, I, I ran off and I hitchhiked back to Vegas and that was just another day in the life of Jamie. I, I had this big black, and at the time I was an extra on these movies and it was 1999. This is, this is 99, 2000. I was there for the whole Y2K thing. Right. And in Vegas. So it was like huge party. Just, it was just, so yeah, I was an extra in these movies. And at the time it was Ocean's Eleven and Rush Hour 2 and these this wave of movies came into Vegas and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an actor. So I was an extra on these movies. Well, I was working on uh, Ocean's Eleven and now I had half my face was black and blue and I couldn't go back on the set and I could easily go back to, to the strip club, but I didn't want to, I hated it. So 
my parents and my sister were going down to Southern California because my sister had a cheerleading competition. So I decided that I was going to take my big black eye and go meet them in, in LA or wherever. And, uh, they would see me and they would let me come move back home with them. So I met them there and got my, my busted eye and, and I'm like, I, can I come home? I don't want to live in Vegas anymore. And they're like, no, hell no, we don't want you in our house. So, um, but you can, you, your, your grandparents are moving to Sacramento. You can help them move and stay with them and go to rehab. I said, okay, fine, whatever. I just need to get out of this place. So, uh, I went to rehab and I got kicked out. This is when I got kicked out of rehab after a couple of weeks. I mean, I wasn't serious. I wasn't really trying to be sober. I just needed a free ride out of Vegas. And my poor grandparents, I, I got another DUI up there in Sacramento. And again, three times the limit, sitting in jail for three days to detox because it's the law. When your blood alcohol level is over a certain amount, you have to stay there for a certain amount of time. And I didn't know if I had a warrant in Vegas. I didn't know why they were keeping me so long. And turns out, oh, okay, well, my alcohol level was that high. And I, I didn't really understand all that at the time. I was 21. So here I am, 21 years old. And I got my second DUI and I was still driving around. I had, I moved home to, to the Bay area because my parents were like, we can't, you know, do this (laughs) to your grandparents. So whatever, like I was going to be homeless if they didn't let me live with them basically. So they let me move home and the situation was weird because while, you know, when I was growing up, it was, we, we fought, we screamed, we yelled, we called each other names. We, it was a lot of drama. There was always drama in, in our home. And at this point I was 21, had a couple DUIs. I'm driving around a car cause I found a new boyfriend as soon as I came home, because that's what I did. I latched on to people and, um, anyone I could find that would drink with me. And uh, he busted my windshield because I decided to leave. And I was, I had a 40. And I remember I pulled up next to a cop and my windshield was busted and I didn't have a license and I had a 40 in my lap. I don't know why I was drinking a 40 on the road. That's just stupid. But I remember thinking like, what is wrong with me? What am I doing? I'm, I'm such a loser. Why can't I stop? And I, it was shortly after that, like I came home one night and I just, I was crying and I was at the foot of my bed and I, I, you know, I didn't grow up in a church or with religion or anything. I learned the Lord's prayer in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I got on my knees one night and I was just, God, I can't stop. Help me want to stop. Please help me want to stop drinking because I don't want to stop, but I can't keep living like this. And, uh, yeah, I decided that the best way for me to try to get control of my life was to go down to Vegas and take care of that DUI. So because I hadn't done all of the requirements that they have for an underage drinking, you know, an underage DUI with such a high alcohol level, I was supposed to get an installment in my car, get uh, a certain amount of money paid, pay these fines, take these DUI classes, go to meetings, go to this mothers against drunk driving seminar. Like, and anytime I got any money, I just smoked it or put it up my nose or drank it. I just, I couldn't keep a job long enough to even come up with the money to pay the fine. So I decided that I was going to go to Vegas and instead of doing all these things, I was just going to do the time. It was going to be like three weeks. I would sit in jail and this was going to be my way of getting clean. This was like this brilliant idea I had. I was going to go to jail to sober up. And uh, my parents helped me. They bought me a one-way ticket to Vegas. And I left in March. It must have been the end of March, beginning of April. I think it was... 
April 1st or something because I was, I was at my aunt's house for a couple, a week and a half before I was going to go to jail. So I went back to my aunt. She had promised me that Tim wasn't going to be there because he had gotten arrested again for beating her up and he wasn't supposed to be there. It was, they were not, he wasn't supposed to be at the house. He had gotten arrested. My aunt promised me he wasn't going to be there. So I went back to stay with her. I went to court. The judge said, Hey, I can put this off. We can give you another extension. It's fine. And I said, no, I don't want an extension. I want to do the time because I just want to get this over with. In my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to sober up and I'm going to get my shit together. Didn't think I needed AA. I didn't think I needed help. I got this, right? Uh, So the judge says, okay, gives me a sentencing date. And two days before the sentencing date, Tim came back and I saw him acting crazy. He was on meth and I don't know if he was I mean, I don't know what else he had been doing, but he was acting strange and beat up a couple of the kids in my aunt's neighborhood. And uh, I had this feeling I was like, dude, this guy's freaking nuts. Like he had done some things in the past when when I was at my aunt, you know, living with my aunt previously that I, I knew there was like something off when he was using and um, I saw him beat up these kids that I was hanging out with. They were just neighborhood kids that hung out with my aunt. Well, apparently he had ripped them off for some dope or something like talk about drama. I knew like this was craziness and I don't care. I didn't like walk away. I just hung out and watched all this drama unfold. And I got a knife and held a knife because I was like, if this guy comes at me, I'm going to be ready. Right. Well, he came at me and I stabbed him one time. And that's when my life changed because he died. And I was arrested and I didn't have a bail because they didn't know if I would be an escape risk or not. I was 21 years old. This is in April 2002. And that night was the last night I've ever had a drink or a drug, any of it. So next month, it's going to be 20 years. I'm going to have 20 years sober, and it'll be 20 years since I took that man's life. And a lot of the, the, the stuff that I think about when I think about my sobriety, and not only about like what it was like and how bad I was back then, but the consequences for me were no longer acceptable to me. And that's what had to happen, unfortunately, for me. I don't ever want anybody to feel like they don't belong in Alcoholics Anonymous because they haven't hit such a severe bottom as some of us have. If you drank a little too much and you don't have a DUI and you didn't ruin your life or kill anybody behind the wheel of a car or get in any domestic disputes, it's all good. Just stay. You don't have to hit these bottoms that some of us have. But um, I was sitting in jail and uh, they had an AA meeting. And so I went and this woman told us to make a gratitude list. So I did that. And I was like, wow, I started to feel a little bit of hope. And I was like, damn, these AA people must be onto something. Because she just told me to do this and I did it. And like, I'm already feeling like a little bit at peace. And then I got a bail. It was, it was too much money. My family couldn't afford it. And, and my dad, my family got a lawyer and, and then they got it reduced a week later. So I was in jail for about three weeks, sobering up like I had planned, but it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't happen the way I had planned. So it's, it's this weird turn of events that I just 
I can't help sometimes when I when I think about the requests that I made to my higher power and I said, help me want to get sober. And then two months later, I was ready to get sober. But at what, you know, at what expense? Like, if I, if I could have done it differently, I don't know if I would have or not. I can't, I can't go back in time, but I do know that there is this thing in Alcoholics Anonymous that is evidently working regularly. And I see the miracles happening all around me. So I decided to keep going and got out of rehab. And um, no, I got out of jail and I went to rehab. I, I came home to California and my aunt took me to a meeting as soon as we got home from the airport. She came and picked me up. She she had a few years of sobriety under her belt. And um, my dad's sister, and she took me to a meeting. And um, it was one of those really weird meetings that you wouldn't usually take a newcomer to. It was this meeting back then called Back to Basics. And we like got on our knees. We worked the first three steps in that meeting out of the big book. We got on our knees. Everybody in the meeting got on their knees and said the third step prayer. And I was all, I was with it. I was like, whatever. I'm, I need to do what I need to do. I was a sponge. I was taking everything in and, you know, I definitely had um, a lot of, it, it wasn't a smooth road, to say the least. Early sobriety for me is something I, I would never want to go back to just because of the um, angst I had, right? The, the discontentedness that I felt, even though I knew that it would get better and I knew I had to stay sober, I still you know, now I just, I didn't have alcohol and drugs to numb the pain and to numb that, that awkwardness that I felt on a daily basis. I had to start living in a different way. So I went to meetings. I went to a meeting when I got out of rehab, I was in rehab for about five months in uh, Berkeley. I was at Newbridge and uh, I split, I left because I wanted to work in AA program. I had enough exposure at this point that I knew I wanted to do Alcoholics Anonymous and I didn't need to stay in rehab for another year. So I left and, and I got into a clean and sober house and I got a couple jobs. My parents paid for the first month's rent. That was it. And I bought a skateboard and I had a bike and I walked and took BART and the bus everywhere. I went to my DUI classes. I went to one meeting a day. I went to, to like 180 meetings in 180 days, but I think even longer. And I got two jobs. I was working at Victoria's Secret and Starbucks. So I'd get up and go to work at Starbucks and four in the, at four in the morning. And then I would go, I had my backpack and my little skateboard and I'd go walk over to Victoria's Secret in Walnut Creek from Starbucks. And I would work in fold underwear until 10 o'clock at night or whatever. And then I'd go to my house meetings or it was, it was a very interesting time, but um, it was a good time. I wouldn't want to go back to it because it was awkward, but I got a sponsor and I started working my steps. And then I had a year sober and I gave myself permission to work in a restaurant where I would be serving alcohol, but I had a good program. And I had, I, I told myself after a year of sobriety, I can work in a restaurant. So meanwhile, I have this case that I'm fighting, right? I, I was arrested for murder. I was 21 when I got sober and I was freaking out and, um, you know, I showed up for all my court dates and they got, you know, pushed back or lawyer would get it pushed off and pushed off because we were trying to get a better deal. And then things started happening slowly, but they started happening. Like I, I started to make friends and be able to hang out with people and laugh. That's one thing that someone from rehab told me I had a I had a Christmas party I threw up after everybody left because I had so many nerves going on but I was like a year sober and people actually showed up and came to my Christmas party and it was wonderful and it was so exciting I just I didn't you know know what to do with myself so my friend from rehab came and he said 
I have never seen you smile so much. Like this is like when we were in rehab, like you never smiled. And I'll never forget that because we we don't really always see the changes and the progress that they're make that we're making. But when the people around us point out these little things, like I love seeing you laugh and smile. Like I I never saw that before, you know, when I knew you in rehab. Those are the things that hanging around, sticking around this program, that we get those little insights from the people around us. And then we get to watch other people grow and be a part of their stories too. So after uh, after a couple years, I got my license back. It was one of those DUI classes for like 18 months or something. It was a long time, but I had a couple DUIs, so I had to do it and I did. And and uh, bought myself a car and then I was serving tables and then I got laid off. So I, I went through um, unemployment and, and went to school to be a massage therapist. So I was doing that. And then I went back to community college. I went back to DVC and I did drop out again, for, but for a different reason. So I had five, I had five uh, years of sobriety when I finally went to trial and I lost a fucking jury of 12 people decided that I was guilty of second degree murder because I went back into the house with a knife knowing that there was a monster inside. That's what the juror told the reporter. So I had a 20 to 50 year sentence. And because I had been so responsible and I was sober and I was, you know, showing up and I had a stack of letters from people in AA and all this support in the courtroom, the judge, let me stay out until my sentencing date, which was going to be a month later. I had a 20 to 50 year sentence and the judge let me stay out because he knew we would appeal the case. So we we came back to California and I, I was just like on autopilot and my friends in AA were just carrying me through that month before I got sentenced. And after a couple of, after a couple of weeks, I got a phone call from my lawyer and he said, I've talked to the judge and the DA, and they're willing to take away the weapons enhancement, which was the second 10 to 25 year. It was 10 to 25 years for second degree murder and 10 to 25 years after that for the use of a deadly weapon. That law doesn't even exist anymore because it's considered now like double jeopardy or I don't know, whatever. Um, but at the time, doing 10 to 25 years which if I had good time, it would be 10 to 12 and a half years, but a minimum of 10 years if I got out at my parole date and then a maximum of 12 and a half if I stayed out of trouble. So I decided to take the deal. So in 2007, I had five years of sobriety when I went to prison. And that was a turning point where a new life, you know, I had to, I was in confinement and I had to take with me the tools of this program. I had this expectation that I was going to adjust to prison through AA, through the AA program there. And it didn't occur to me that in the 21st century, there might not be an AA program going on in prison. Like it, that wasn't even a thought in at all. Like why wouldn't there be AA in prison where the majority of people who are locked up are there behind drugs and alcohol. Um, but there wasn't. So that's one of the first things I did is I, I got on the phone and I was calling my, my sponsor and my friends in the program and telling them, you know, Hey, like, like we don't have AA. like, can you call the central office down here and see if they'll bring meetings in from H and I. And I, I just did what I knew. I sat in the pod down there on the at the table with my big book. And if somebody asked me what I was reading, I would tell them and I'd ask them if they were interested, you know, and I was working as a dishwasher, um, my first job. And um, I was washing dishes with this girl who killed her mom in a blackout, um, a drug induced psychotic blackout. And that became, she became my first sponsee in prison. Um, you know, and she stayed my sponsee for the time I was there. I heard some interesting, did some interesting step work in those cells and on that yard. And at one point we had a meeting every day, seven days a week. 
And a lieutenant came by and shut us down one night because he saw one girl had her head on another girl's shoulder because we were packed in. I mean, we had packed meetings. Um, it became the thing to do. You know, people loved it. Um, I was going to these meetings, these noon meetings in Walnut Creek that were um, five days a week. And so that's what I modeled our meetings off of inside. Instead of a women's meeting on Mondays, we did something else, a grapevine meeting. And then on Tuesdays, we did a 12 and 12 meeting where we read the first step. And then the next week, we read the first tradition. And then the following, we the second step. And then the second tradition and so on. And then on Wednesdays, we had a big book meeting. And on Thursdays, someone would share their story. And on Fridays, we would have... Um, a spiritual, like a meditation meeting, you know? And so I brought these tools in with me because I was lucky enough to have had them and to have the experience of sponsorship and understanding the traditions. You know, I got in a fight with this girl. Um, it didn't end up, you know, being a physical fight, but she did throw the uh, 12 and 12 at me because she was pissed at me because I told her we couldn't keep secretarying the meeting. We had to let other people do service. And the only reason I knew that is because I had, I had been doing service and I had a working knowledge of the steps and the traditions before I came to prison. So, you know, we eventually became great friends and, and our meetings went on. And when our when our meetings got shut down, we were still able to have the meetings with the people um, from H&I coming in once a week. It was inconsistent and they would shut us down. And sometimes if they didn't show up, we weren't allowed to have meetings. There were um, times when we got barred from going to meetings because if you missed two meetings for having a visit or whatever, or being sick, or then you'd get taken off list and you wouldn't be able to go back for three months, which is something that we had to fight. We were always fighting stuff. We were always, I was always above the radar. They knew who I was. When I was 10 years, I, I had just turned 10 years sober. I was, I had been there for five years. It was my halfway point. I had 10 years of sobriety and my roommate got busted with hooch in our cell. She was holding it for someone. So I got a major write-up. I was looking at going to the hole. And my name wasn't even on the write-up. And it was like, they knew me. They knew that I, I wasn't involved. They knew that, because I was their pain in the ass. Like, I was getting my college degree. So I was always up their ass trying to get my supplies and trying to get my stuff from the university that I was working through. I got my associate's degree while I was there. For the for eight out of 10 years that I was there, I was working as a tutor and I helped women get their GEDs and their high school diplomas. And I sponsored a bunch of women and I got, you know, I was driving the forklift for this other job, the other job that I did for two years. But I always had a job. I never went to the hole and I kept all my teeth. So, you know, my one goal was to come out a better person than when I went in. I don't know if I reached that goal, but I, I came out being staying sober. That was that was, of course, my first priority. I don't know. I can't say if I'm a better person or whatever, but I got out in 2017 and I got out with an associate's degree. And while I was inside, I had read about these guys who had done time in California and started this program at UC Berkeley called Underground Scholars. So I, my plan was to go to San Francisco State into Project Rebound, which was uh, a state, pro, uh, state university program for people who were formerly incarcerated. But then I saw this and I was like, hey, you know, maybe I'll try to get into Berkeley. I told my friends about it. But when I got out, I had this unexpected depression kind of take control of my life and um, had um, 15 years sober when I got out of prison in 2017. And I was not expecting to be confronting a depression like this. Um, the amount of stress, I think, of getting out and having to catch up. And, you know, I hadn't seen my, my, myself in a full length mirror in 10 years. You know, I was 26 when I went in here, I am 36 years old and I'd been living in a concrete block for a decade. And I was 
just confronting the world now and trying to yield into it. And it was just going too fast. And I was really depressed. And um, a friend came to visit and he said, did you go to Underground Scholars yet? And we were having sushi. We were in Berkeley. And um, I said, no, man, they're not going to let me in. I'm a convicted murderer. Like, there's no way. And he's like, let's go. Let's go find them. I was like, right now? He's like, yeah, when we finish lunch, let's go up there and find them. And we did. He brought me up there and I met this dude who later I found out was in that article in the New Yorker that I read about underground scholars. And he had done time. And I walked in and I said, um, hey, I just got out of prison a few months ago and I read your guys's um, article in the New Yorker. And so I was just wondering if like I'd be able to get in. And he just looked at me and he's like, wow, you read that? You know, I was like, like that dude became like one of my good friends and we were roommates when the, the pandemic hit, like uh, we, I was in Berkeley, I fucking got in and I got my bachelor's degree at UC Berkeley and I got into this undergrad research program where I got this money to do this research about women with mental health issues being um, imprisoned rather than getting help for, for mental health. And that research with that, I, I was able to write a 36 page thesis and um, you know, my advisors loved it and, and they wrote me amazing recommendation letters when I applied to these PhD programs and I got into a PhD program in Michigan and that's why I'm in Michigan now. I'm at Ann Arbor at the university of freaking Michigan, which I didn't know was one of the best history programs for graduate schools. I just find myself now here almost 20 years later, surrounded by my plants. Whereas before, you know, I was in the desert, let alone being in my cell. I like didn't have any, like plants and green and stuff. And even when I went out onto the yard, it was the desert. Like there was one tree on our yard, (laughs) you know? So that's why I sit here right now. And like, even though I'm speaking to you and I don't see you and, and I don't know who you are and I can't look in your faces, I, I know that you're there and I am surrounded by life. I have these plants in my house and I have my laptop and I'm doing this research now. Um, at the University of Michigan, I'm in my first year as a PhD student. I have a fully funded program. They pay me to go to school. I'm going to be here for at least six years working on this. Um, and I'm going to be teaching. Like, I will be teaching undergrad students beginning next semester or in the spring. And and this is the, 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 the product of working an honest program in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and my honest 100% of the time, no, I'm human, right? I fuck up when I get nervous or when I feel like a, a the spotlight's on me in a bad way, you know, like sometimes say something like <laughs> stupid stuff. But like for the most part, when I hurt someone's feelings, I make a genuine attempt to apologize and make things right. I fuck up regularly. I drive too fast all the time. I I swear when it's inappropriate, but I don't drink and I don't use. And when it comes down to it, I try to be helpful to the people around me rather than take, take from them. So I'll be, if I could stay sober, you know, I'm not going to say God willing because I know God's willing. And I'm not going to say that this is a qualification. Uh, this is my experience, strength, and hope. Um, there are no qualifications for Alcoholics Anonymous. You do not qualify to be here. We all belong. If you decide that you're an alcoholic or an addict and you want to be an Alcoholics Anonymous and you want to be a member, then you're a member. You don't have to qualify by hitting a bottom and going to prison. You don't have to qualify by killing anybody. If you believe you're an alcoholic and you want help, just stay because you never know what can happen. And you never know the people who you're going to help. You know, I'm on social media now. I finally have learned after, you know, being out for four years, I finally know how to use Instagram and, and Facebook. And I'm now I'm even starting to get on Twitter. So 
get to see these women that I knew inside who I sponsored and they, they post like six years sober, you know, nine years sober. And, and I get to see that and be grateful that I had the opportunity to be a part of their life in prison. When I think about what happened 20 years ago and what I did, you know, I just think that if I continue to stay sober and try to help other people, then somewhere on the other side, Tim is rooting for me, you know, and, and, and I don't want to, um, make that, that incident and what happened for nothing. And this is the best I can do. So I'm going to keep doing it. I can't take it back. I can't bring him back, but I can stay sober and prevent that from happening again, at least by my hands. And, um, and I do believe that he is on the other side rooting for me and all of us. So I wish he made it, but I, I just one day at a time believe that trying to be a better person and forgiving myself and helping those around me, it's got to be enough, at least for now. So I'm going to keep coming back and I hope you do too. And now I'm ready for questions. <laughs> oh my goodness. What a good story. So I loved, uh, well, shit. Okay. I, I'm trying That's not okay. to, I'm trying not to say the word love because if you listen to any episode on here, I say that word like 50 fucking times. That's um, good. That's okay. <laughs> I'm just so passionate. Okay. So I really liked the part. I liked it all. I liked it all. And I have a bunch of questions. But what is your sobriety yeah. date? My sobriety date is April 9th, 2002. April 9th, 2002. Okay. So if I'm doing my math correctly, you were five years in the program, went in, did 10 years inside, and now you've been out for almost five years. Yeah. So you've yep. kind of booked in it with these. So you'll be entering yeah. kind of a new phase of sobriety outside in the right. coming years. And you're in a PhD program, and it sounds like you have such awesome people around you. I, I do. I do want to hear more about underground scholars. Okay. I have um, other questions, but before I move on to them, what exactly yeah. is that? So these guys were at Cal, and they, I don't know where they were at, but they must have been in a class or something. They saw something familiar in each other and they made a couple comments to each other and they said, Hey, you were, you were in the shoe, which is secured housing unit. That's the hole. And yeah, I was in the shoe too, you know? And so they were like in this reading group or a class or something. And, uh, you know, with the help of a professor who actually ended up being my advisor, they started this group for people because if you're on campus, you see, all these kids and, and all these groups, there's all these organizations and groups and being formerly incarcerated, you don't really, and older, you know, returning student, uh, you kind of feel out of place. And so they were like, we should start a group for formerly incarcerated students. And they did. They provide information and assistance for people who want to get back in school, but they don't know where to start. You can just contact them and tell them like, hey, like I want to come to school at Berkeley. Can you help me get in? In fact, they've moved beyond Berkeley now. I'm pretty sure that they're at UC Santa Barbara, Irvine. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's 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 and and that article is how I found out about them. And I, you know, gave me that little glimmer of got me to talk about it to my friend who then brought me, insisted that we go, you know, when I was like, nah, they won't let me in for me. I think that's what threw me off. It was designed for people that were locked up, though. So, yes. of course, you would be an ideal candidate for that program. Yes. And you exactly. happen to be really smart. And I knew that from the way you were speaking. I didn't know that you're in a PhD. I, you know, I didn't know anything about you, but, uh, yeah. but I was told ahead of time that it was an awesome story. So I was not disappointed. You do not disappoint. <laughs> Thanks. When you, when you prefaced at the very beginning about how there's violence, 
I was expecting a little bit more detail. So I feel like you told the story very respectfully to Tim, and I believe he's on the other side rooting for you as well. For sure. I had that thought before you said it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I should probably ask about being inside. I imagine listeners are really curious about that experience. And you shared a lot of the program and how you got through that time. Or is there anything that you're doing today from advocacy for those that are inside? Because you talked about this. So I come from a family of correctional officers, my mom and dad and stepdad. and Well, you know, (laughs) well, and then my mom married an inmate. So it's a a long story. Um, That's awesome. It is kind of awesome, but not when you were growing up with it happening. Uh, But I feel like, did did Anna tell me that you're doing some advocacy or or had you done or what can I do from the outside to help those inside? Uh, yeah, so um the program that I'm in is uh, a joint program history and women's and gender studies. So I'm my advisor here for my PhD program is a woman who wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book about a prison uprising that happened. And, um, they recently did a documentary about it and it's up for an Academy Award. So my research is about women's institutions and that is the way that I am, the direction I'm taking with my work. I'm, you know, I got out, I didn't want to look back. I wanted to study, I wanted to read history and English and write. I wanted to read and write about stuff that had nothing to do with prisons. Of course, <laughs> that obviously is not what happened. <laughs> I um, I am now studying women's resistance and confinement. And as far as what what other people can do is educate yourself. Look into the the majority of people who are locked up in our in our system. You know that are confined are marginalized people who are below the poverty line and people of color. We have these laws that have built, we're built on a very racist system. Rape wasn't even like a thing if you were married. It's a very sexist system until I think it was like the 1960s or something like if you were married and your husband raped you you just had to put up with it until the 60s it wasn't a it wasn't even a thing so when we look at where our laws the foundation of where our laws come from like just because something is a law doesn't mean it's moral it doesn't mean it's right and the people the majority of people who are locked up are people of color and they're people who have been oppressed who after world war 2 a lot of black people were not given the GI Bill like white people were. So it's not necessarily like we live in the system that it's like like when they say, you know, if you work hard enough, you'll be fine. Like only lazy people are in poverty. Like, no, they're it's it's stacked like like it's rigged. The system really is rigged. And so people have been oppressed and, and generations have been oppressed. And then what do we do when? when people get in trouble for trying to feed their families, we lock them up. That's our default now. What do we do when people have mental health issues and they're talking to themselves and they haven't showered in 10 days? We call the cops and the cops show up and see that they have a warrant because they were supposed to make a court date that they didn't make because they weren't on their meds and they take them back to jail. And that's just, it's unacceptable. So understanding the foundation of our legal system and history, I think is so important to understanding the way our so-called justice system works now. And we've got 5% of the world's population in the United States, but 20% of the world's incarcerated are in the United States. How did that happen? The whole war on drugs, war on poverty, war on crime, its that's not it's not the right approach and it's been proven like over and over. We need community care and support, not uh, punishment, right? It's, it's not helping anything. So uh, that's my long winded answer to that. Sorry. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, you can't ask a PhD student about what they're studying and not expect passion. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I mean, like, as, as far as being an alcoholic addict, H&I is, it's needed. Like, a lot of people can't have meetings unless they're brought in from, people bring them in from the outside, unfortunately. And during this time of COVID, it's super awkward. A lot of places aren't even letting people hang out in the day room, let alone go to AA meetings. I There are a lot of ways to get involved. Um, but first, getting real information about the system and the way it functions, I think, is a good place to start. Do you have your thesis to share with me when we're done? Because I'd love to read it. Yeah, I can send it to you, my undergrad thesis. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So you got through 10 years in prison and you got through your whole share. And I'm almost impressed that we didn't talk higher power at all. I cannot let you off the hook without a conversation about that. Oh, my higher power was in the whole time. Tell me about it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, from the moment when I asked my higher power to help me want to get sober to, to Tim being on the other side, rooting for me, there's way more going on than we can see. And so that's why it's my responsibility to just do what's in front of me and, and do the next right thing, follow the path that's laid out in front of me, because I can't left to my own devices i'm fucked <laughs> but <laughs> with the belief and the certainty that there's something better for us so i don't know i guess in a way i kind of take for granted that the audience knows that the higher power is in the story the whole time but maybe i i need to address that early on I don't hmm. know. I Food don't for know. thought. Thank you. Maybe. I I love somebody else on one of these episodes said to love to name God is to limit God. And I right. and I stand by that. It's like, oh yeah. I like that. And I, yeah. I like what I think about my higher power today is very different than what I thought about a year ago or five years ago. But the one thing that's consistent is the way it works in my life. And you've explained mm-hmm. that very well. Like with faith and with patience. I am thoroughly guided on mm-hmm. what the next right decision is for me to do. And that guidance right. and, is my proof. Right. And sobriety. Your sobriety is your proof. Oh, right? yeah. Like, like, if, like, it's miraculous that I'm sober today, that I went through the last 20 years and I've been able to come out and I'm still sober, let alone all the other wonderful shit that's going on. Like, I just did my taxes and I owe like $3,000 because they don't take taxes out of the money they give us and I need to save and do my own taxes. I got hit last night while I was in Whole Foods, like somebody hit my car, but they left their insurance. They left their insurance card on my window. So I'm able to get it taken care of and not have to pay for it. I got a root canal last week and I went back to get the crown and they're like, oh, you need another root canal on another <laughs> tooth. And I'm like, well, insurance isn't going to pay for it. It's going to have to come out of pocket. But that's cool because guess what? I get to get a root canal. Like, that's freaking <laughs> awesome. When we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, you just know everything's going to be okay. Fear of financial insecurity will leave us, right? These are the things I get to experience today. and. It's just amazing how how much more at peace I am when I let like let my higher power do what my higher power does and not try to do it myself. You know? Yes, I know. Like there's there like I'm getting another root canal next week, but it's all good because I got a root canal last week and it went great. I'm not having pain on that tooth anymore. Um and it's a miracle that we have this technology and the ability to do these kinds of things. I'm just I'm grateful. Yes, I imagine. I imagine uh, I know how you feel when it comes to gratitude. Yeah. Final question. Mm-hmm. For the alcoholic out there listening who either has hit their bottom and feel like they've ruined their life already or mm-hmm. isn't sure that they're an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. 
What message would you like to leave with them? Well, I don't believe in rock bottom. Rock bottom is six feet under. I, with all the stuff that I've gone through, I know that it could get worse. It can always get worse. So if you're not sure that you're an alcoholic, that's okay. Hang out. Maybe you'll catch the disease from us if you hang out long enough. And if you believe that you are an alcoholic and you're having a difficult time getting sober or staying sober, I asked God for help to get sober because I couldn't do it. And my prayer was answered. That, I mean, that's what I always go back to is like, ask your higher power for that, that willingness, even if you don't know what your higher power is, or you don't know if it is ask anyway, like, Hey, if you're out there, help me want to do this because it worked for me and it might work for you too. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.